Hello, everyone. It's August 13th, 2019. It's a big show this week. We have Professor Ella Atkins with us to talk about automated decision systems in aerospace and astronaut-robot collaboration. I love all three of those words, especially in that order. Here's three more and liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 223 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. All right. What do we talk about? Um, I can talk about the fact that I am now officially diagnosed as having ADHD. It seems like, uh, well, <laughs> no, this is not true, but it seems like every couple months, it's like some sort of new medical thing with Ben. So, I mean, if it's not cooking, it's yeah, like, what's well, your new no, diagnosis? <laughs> no, for real. Here, here's the thing is like, I, for the first time in my life, I'm in a place where I can actually go take care of this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Ah. Just emotionally, monetarily, and it's like, oh, yeah, I wasn't in, like, I've always thought that I'm in amazing health. I am in amazing health, but it's less that I'm in really good health and more that I have never taken the time to diagnose any of the things that I complain constantly about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And it's also good, like, once you can do that, it kind of gives you peace of mind, and that's no small thing, actually. Yeah. No, you're you're absolutely right. It always feels good to know, even if something's wrong, it's good to know that that's what's going on instead of have it just be a mystery. Um, but anyway, so the ADHD community is pretty, it's, it's a pretty close-knit community because it turns out we experience the world in ways that are very different than the rest of the population. So if anybody has ADHD and they want to chat, feel free to reach out. I'm, I'm happy to talk about, you know, being unable to do laundry and <laughs> things like that. I've certainly been scatterbrained my whole life, but I can do laundry. Um, it actually kind of puts me at rest, actually. That's like the really? one chore that I can do that, it, yeah, I don't know if I'd say I like it, but it doesn't bother me. It's kind of nice to put all the clothes in there. There's like something satisfying about it, I guess. But anyway, that's just one, that's just I don't, one example. I don't, mind, I don't mind doing laundry. It's um, Folding laundry is nice, but I have to have stimulation. I have to have a TV show or a podcast running. Um, yeah. It would be pretty difficult for me to sit and actually fold clothes because what happens is I start folding clothes and then I get distracted by all the clothes on the ground. Let me go pick up those. Okay, well, I can't pick these up until I empty the clothes basket. Okay, so that all gets dumped out on the bed and then I can pick everything up and I can put it in the basket and then I find a a piece of paper that I've been looking for. So now I go off and do that and all of a sudden the clothes are not folded or I'll just put clothes in in the washing machine my brain is really bad at turning short-term memory into long-term memory. So I'll put in the clothes machine or in the, in the clothes washer. It will buzz. I'll go, oh, that's right. I forgot about putting laundry in there. And then go back to whatever I was doing and not forward the laundry. And so, mm. and, and it turns out that Annalise is also uh, ADHD. Probably she's working on her diagnosis, but she really identified with a lot of the things that people have to go through and so both of us will hear it go off say oh we'll do it in five minutes and then not do it that seems kind of at least that example seems kind of common to me in fact yes. yeah. yeah 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 no no it and that, that's the thing is like a lot of people who have adhd like me don't go and get diagnosed because uh, everything that they have to deal with sounds very normal until you realize oh. that it's every day every hour every minute you're struggling to stay on task and it's just the the magnitude of how many things you have to struggle with so maybe i'm not adhd then because i feel like i can stay on task and now i can procrastinate but that's something different obviously that's right. not quite the same thing but i tend so, to not get too distracted well one of, one of the really interesting things that i learned is that um, procrastination is actually really helpful for adhd brains because um in order to stay on task the adhd brain needs stimulate it, it needs dopamine basically mm. and so either the task 
can be really interesting. That's why I love working on this podcast, because I can sit and actually pay attention to something because it's super interesting to me. Or you need some other form of uh, dopamine. And one of the things that that'll get your brain interested is if you have a very short time limit and there's a real huge consequence for not getting it done, that makes it exciting all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. And so ADHD brains will procrastinate on a lot of things and that's okay because it means that they get them done you know (laughs) there's an adhd subreddit and somebody posted something that really resonated with me it's uh, adhd is having the energy to write 15 paragraph long comments on the adhd subreddit but not be able to do your laundry yeah (laughs) so like yeah you could get me started on something that i'm interested in which brains and specifically my brain and i I could talk about that forever but you have Mm -hmm. another stimulating topic that will hold my attention all right well let's move on to that then (laughs) so this week in space light history finally so you had a good clue last week and we got some good answers or well we got one correct one but yeah we got i think like two wrong ones and one right one so the clue from last week was wash your hands uh our sole winner is carolyn hipskind congrats this is the best kind of winning where you do it on your own this week in space flight history is august 17th 1962 uh it was carl sagan advocating for sterilizing spacecraft um so basically he did a presentation to the national association of sciences at nas and um he called contamination of the moon an unparalleled scientific disaster now you know you can guess why he would say that But I I think it's really important that extraterrestrial life was literally the last thing that he was worried about. There were other things that we need to worry about before covering up evidence of extraterrestrial life. So there there are basically uh, four types of contamination. There's uh, biomixy, which is covering up evidence of uh, what he calls relics of primitive indigenous organisms and deposited cosmobiota. So this is potentially covering up extraterrestrial life. So the first thing that he cited that we need to be worried about is the early history of the solar system. That's what we're potentially going to be losing if we scatter organic matter all over the moon, right? Because you're slamming a spacecraft into the moon. You're covering the moon in in whatever they're made of. Uh, We also would lose touch with the chemical composition of what he calls matter in the remote past. So um, the early history of the solar system for sure is part of that. And then also the origin of life on Earth because the moon was severed off from the Earth at a very early point. So it's kind of a nice way to freeze that idea of what was happening on Earth. So these are the things that he was uh, worried about. And he specifically mentioned that, yeah, this is not the only atmosphereless body in the solar system. And certainly we could go to other places in the solar system. But the fact is that the moon is the only unweathered body, right? So the only body that's not affected by an atmosphere that that is also at a similar distance from the sun. So to find another unweathered body, you have to go way out into the reaches of the solar system. And those bodies are not going to be as informative to earth and earth life. Um, So the, the four types of contamination that he was worried about, he actually has names for them. I've never heard them before. And I I just want to say them because I think they're really interesting. And this, this is an interesting way that he organized them, which is sort of in levels, of immediacy, right? So the first is biomixy, which is relics of previous indigenous organisms or deposited cosmobiota. So not the actual organic matter, but uh, maybe the equivalent of a fossil. Then there's 
uh, sapromixy, which is uh, the pre-biological organic matter, so the actual matter itself. Then there's phagomixy, which the construction of that word should tell you what we're going to talk about. It's um, the idea that the moon might be capable of supporting earth microbiota and doing so in a geometric fashion. And so that's the idea that, you know, earth microbes could land on the moon and maybe below the surface there's enough water, enough heat, uh, enough energy that they could actually begin to reproduce. And without anything to stop them, they would take over everything. They would you know, reproduce geometrically with no pressure keeping them from reproducing other than, you know, just the, the basic uh, difficulty of, of reproducing in a, in a different sort of environment. And then the last one was eco-mixy. So eco is the idea that there are living organisms on the moon. And so not only could Earth microbes survive in that environment, but maybe they could outcompete native organisms. And so that would, you know, that would be losing data in that way. So it's interesting that extraterrestrial life isn't what he was worried about first and foremost. It was the history and the geology and the chemistry. But when we talk about what these four different levels of contamination are, they all kind of focus on different levels, different evidence levels of extraterrestrial life or, you know, uh, early terrestrial life is also kind of uh, included in that. Anyway, so there you go. Carl Sagan. What what a guy. <laughs> I mean, just <laughs> um, one of one of the best brains that our society has produced. I mean, just. I know, right? Yeah. And making up a, all kinds great... of new words and everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Those words yeah, are great. Such new, new words, new apple pie recipes. Um, just mm-hmm. a, a fantastic <laughs> advocate for science. Yeah. Step one, uh, add universe. Isn't that the first step? If, if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. <laughs> all right. So the clue for next week in 1959 is Mercury's fleet feet. Fleet feet. Okay. That is fun. If you think you know what that is in reference to, just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. In the news, Rocket Lab. So this came out of left field, I guess. So Rocket Lab is going for reusability. And I have to say this was a pleasant surprise. It was kind of like something unexpected. that was a cool news topic in the middle yeah. of the week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I'm digging it. Totally did not anticipate this at all. But I have to say I love it. <laughs> yeah. And so this was a presentation that the CEO, Peter Beck, gave. And it looked like it was to a relatively small room, at, at least compared to something you know that like Elon Musk does when he gives his big speeches. He likes mm-hmm. to go for a little bit more fanfare. So reusability for an electron rocket. So how does that work with a launch vehicle that's so small? Because, you know, the physics tells me that that it's just not possible. Well, and it might prove not to be, but I guess there is a way to do it, right? Yeah. So so what you're talking about is is getting through that deceleration phase as you're re-entering, right? Mm-hmm. And um, Space News um, says that he declined to tell them how he was going to do it. And then Everyday Astronaut came by and said, hey, he, he made a, a YouTube video, which will be linked in the show notes. And he goes, yeah, actually, I talked to Peter Beck and he told me what they want to do. <laughs> oh, snap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, what they're going to do is they're going to use a balut, um, which mm. makes a lot of sense. Um, so balut for high altitude and then uh, a parafoil for the low altitude recovery. And um, I don't think you mentioned it, it is that they're going to catch it with a helicopter. Um, right. Um, which is crazy. I mean, you know. Well, so that's a new bit of news that I didn't know. So the balut, is that meant for that's not 
part of the deceleration phase, is it? Yes. Yeah, that's that's how we want. That's how uh, Beck wants to get past the wall, which is that sudden deceleration that you experience um, coming okay. in from from high altitude. Because as I understood it, he did at least say that they would be using a lot of TPS and aerodynamic decelerators, which I guess that might be in reference to the balloon. Yep, that's exactly what that's in reference yep. to. Yeah. <laughs> but I was thinking something more like fins or something like that. I didn't think of a yeah. you know balloon. Yeah, it does. It doesn't look like they're going to have any fins. I mean, when you when you look at the photos that they've put out, I definitely don't see any grid fins. You know, like nothing obvious. Mm-hmm. So it'll be really interesting to see what what they decide to do. Because they did release a nice little video, like right on their own website, that mm-hmm. shows it yeah. basically using the balloon and then slowing down and then getting scooped up by the helicopter. But yeah, I was looking for fins immediately and they weren't there. <laughs> Right, right, right. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's one of the nice things about a balloon is even if you're facing literally the wrong direction, if you dump a huge cross-section object out the back, you're going to point in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So you don't you don't really need fins. And, and I call midair recovery crazy, even though, you know, we have a lot of history of doing it. It's just, it's a big deal. It's really hard to do. He seems to say that it's not going to be, well, it's not the hardest part, but it might still be hard. But he seems to think that that's actually, you know, the easiest thing is the midair recovery. In, in terms know, right? of engineering, sure, it's probably the easiest part. But I mean, look at SpaceX trying to catch. Well, okay, so SpaceX catching a fairing with a boat is difficult because boats have a very limited range of movement and they have exactly one opportunity yeah. to catch that thing. Whereas with a helicopter, you have much less limited movement and you also can begin your capture attempts high up and then be able to make multiple passes if you can't get it the first time but it's it's still catching a rocket with with a helicopter <laughs> it's it's not simple by any means and maybe this is just me but i feel like uh i should throw this out here what a balut is because <laughs> i actually have to look oh, that up sure. i wasn't familiar okay. with that word but yeah it's essentially right it's just a uh like a high velocity kind of semi-parachute it just looks kind of like a almost i don't know a top with a little torus around it at the one end and then that evidently is good for so so balut is parachute and balloon but parachute and balloon it's a ah. uh, suitcase word what's that called uh portmanteau. portmanteau portmanteau yeah it's interesting because a lot of the designs have that kind of torus around the the widest part of it but um you don't necessarily have to do that just seems like a good idea so peter beck said that they have to get the thing down from mach 8 to just a small fraction of that in what like 70 seconds so that's a huge deceleration um Mm. but i guess that that's something the balloons are designed to do because my intuition is saying how does a balloon survive those types of velocities but i suppose that if you're in a very thin atmosphere then that's Mm -hmm. certainly possible Mm -hmm. so the key is is applying a lot of drag to your vehicle very early when the when the atmosphere is so uh rarefied we've played around with using parachutes but they they don't work so well they tend to be too delicate and so you know, balloons are much more structurally sound. You've got a lot more material there and they can be huge, right? They can really mm-hmm. dramatically increase the cross-section of your vehicle. And so that that's the key there is not worrying about a parachute that has to have a certain amount of air to fill up and puff up. Just inflate the thing uh, mm-hmm. with gas and just get it big and, and you can start decelerating much earlier. Well, one thing I thought was pretty funny about all this was that essentially Beck... They've been looking into reusing their electron rockets for since last year, actually, late last year. And apparently Beck uh, kind of came up with the idea of like, well, I might as well own up to it and just like, you know, make it public because uh, they're going to have a block upgrade for uh, what two flights from now. 
know, maybe three mm-hmm. flights from that. And so it's kind of like people are going to notice that. And so we might as well, you know, the cat's out of the bag. Yeah. An interesting thing he said was that the biggest reason for this is actually launch frequency. So it's mm-hmm. not really to save money. It's just that he wants to increase launch cadence. And I suppose the company is having a hard time doing that because, you know, you, you can only make so many rockets so fast. Mm-hmm. He made it sound like saving money was kind of an afterthought, which was kind of strange to me because I would have thought that that's the first thing you'd want to do is, you know, save that first stage. But no, it seems that he just wants to launch more vehicles, which in turn will make you more money. So I suppose either way, it's, you know, a financial gain. So right, right. And as you said, Dennis, they began hiring folks earlier this year, apparently, because uh, they were looking into reuse. I think it's important to note that Peter Beck said that he didn't think that reuse was even possible, but then as they flew, they started to learn that, oh, this might actually be doable. And so that sort of changed his mind. And he made a bet, by the way, that he said that he would eat his hat if you know they ever pursued reusability. So yeah. so now apparently he has to eat his hat. And I don't know if he's serious about that, like if he's going to keep his word and actually eat his hat. But <laughs> he seemed to indicate that he might just do that. I don't know how well that goes for your digestion. but Yeah, I could see some clever ways to maybe try to get around that maybe i don't know bake something that looks like a hat (laughs) oh i'm down for a hat cake although the hat looks cool and i kind of want one now because i don't have a rocket lab hat i actually really like it so i might purchase one but i won't eat it (laughs) so this upcoming flight which is a look ma no hands that will be equipped with uh, a data recorder called brutus and i don't know why it's called brutus but that's the name of it and so this thing is going to be recording data the whole way up and back down again and then of course the first stage will crash and they're going to fish that out of the ocean and they're going to collect all of that data. So that's kind of neat. So I don't know exactly what kind of, you know, like metrics it's taking, but apparently a lot. Pretty exciting thing. Maybe yeah. uh, they'll get to see these leaving wallops someday. Okay, so they have a launch pad at wallops, but aren't they building one at the Cape as well? I don't know why you would do both. It's Firefly. Oh, Firefly. Uh, that's yeah. right. Okay. Do you think that Firefly will be going for re- reusability now? <laughs> Seems everyone's doing it this <laughs> Don't want to be the only one left out. We're going to do some short and sweet. We just got one, actually. Ben wants to do it. I had one about a cool space tether, but (laughs) that got vetoed. Well, I mean, it's been done. Oh, it has? Okay. Well, I mean, if we've talked about it before, or you just mean tethers in space have been done, but I don't think that one has ever been done to deorbit a satellite yet, has it? Because this is the whole point. It's a new technology, I thought. Yeah. Tether, uh, all sorts of things. Tethers and sheets and... Uh, basically anything that pops out of the thing they go oh yeah this will help you over it's like yeah okay it will but it's not exciting well as you were then all right so the first ion thruster has been used on a 1u cubesat very very tiny so it's official. Morpheus Space has won the race to put ion thrusters on the smallest of CubeSats. Their 160 gram Morpheus Nano Field Effect Electric Propulsion Engine, aka NanoFeep, uh, were installed uh, aboard University Würzburg Experimental Satellite 4. It's a 1U CubeSat. The liquid gallium thrusters were fired for just over six minutes, and the test was successful, though it revealed a design flaw in the spacecraft. Uh, One of the antennas was within the drive plume and caused off-axis thrust. Future tests will include uh, more dramatic orbit change maneuvers. Interesting design flaw. Yeah. Yeah, right. (laughs) Isn't that funny? (laughs) It must have been annoying when they realized that. Yeah. (laughs) 
All right, so this week we have a cool guest with us. We have uh, Professor Ella Atkins. So she is a professor in the Department of Aerospace Engineering at the University of Michigan and a senior member of the IEEE. So welcome to the show. I guess we should just begin with you telling us a little bit about what you do because it's quite a few things, actually. I'm not even sure how to summarize it all. Sure. Uh, I have main roles of teaching, research, and service as a faculty member or professor at the University of Michigan. I'm in the Aerospace Engineering Department and have worked on both air and space applications. Uh, most of my work involves writing autonomy software and thinking about how people work with the autonomy software and how the software works in harsh environments that we encounter in air and space. With unmanned aircraft, we're seeing all these new missions, all these little toys that are now becoming really useful for low-cost flight. And in space, where we continue to go places that we haven't gone before, unmanned missions, manned missions, it's just a really exciting time to be in aerospace. So I work with students mm -hmm. on research. I go out to NASA and participate in workshops and collaborative research and then do all kinds of other activities at conferences and uh, publish uh, papers and journals, conferences, and so on. That is so cool. Yeah, so so we're very space-focused, um, but... Um, looking at your CV and looking at the work that you've done at you know lower altitudes is so fascinating that I'm really excited to hear about some of your work with uh, with UAVs and and you know atmospheric flight because it's it's really cool. So I I think where I would like to start out with is hearing about some of your work working on automation in space. And for me, what what really is interesting is how you're working on that resiliency and, and the ability to recover from unexpected situations. Like, what's the general approach that we're using these days? And what do you think is the most important way to kind of go, go about accomplishing this? Sure. If you think about increasingly autonomous systems, we tend in the community not to use the phrase fully autonomous because mm. then you get into all kinds of philosophical arguments about well didn't a human launch the spacecraft well mm -hmm. yes didn't the human mm. say go to europa well yes so it's not fully autonomous it's increasingly autonomous so a lot of the autonomy is building from the very low level get sensor data make decisions about control signals that you send out to point a spacecraft or change its orbit up through the task level decisions of what data should I acquire, how should I process that data on board, and then how should I send the data through limited communication resources to wherever it needs to go. One of the things that is going to give us a lot better efficiency moving forward, even in our unmanned missions, especially when there are blackouts and delay that is substantial, for example, the proposed missions to places like asteroids, Europa, and Titan, mm -hmm. people on Earth really cannot be involved in time-critical decisions. It's just too long between when things happen and when people can know about it due to the delay in communications, time of light uh, transfer for data. So that means that we have to put the decision capabilities on these spacecraft, on these landers, on these probes, that allows them to take even unexpected signals and make correct decisions with them to both preserve the spacecraft and accomplish mission goals such as science goals. Uh, so the way we do that is twofold. The low risk way, which is pretty simple, but still gives people uh, 
some nervousness when they think about it is to take established procedures such as a checklist that an astronaut, a mission control specialist, or a pilot of an aircraft might use and encode that deterministic set of instructions in software. And then the spacecraft or the aircraft can use that checklist and just go step by step through all of the boring sequence of instructions that you expect. Often these checklists will have contingencies. So for example, in an aircraft, there's a whole book, which now is usually electronic, of contingency management procedures. What do you do when your engine fails? What do you do when there's a depressurization issue or uh, one of your batteries runs low? There are all kinds of those that are documented and have been prepared for both space and air missions. Those can be trusted because they have been developed from experience, from models, from simulations, from a variety of different uh, uh, sources of, of information. So I don't think we're very worried about whether those will work. That gives you a pretty good baseline of resilience. What we're more worried about is when the unexpected happens. Mm. At that point, humans have been credited and deserve this credit for ingenuity, for the ability to learn in real time based on whatever is happening. And even though you don't have a 100% guarantee of success, people have done pretty well, especially the clever people that later were held out as examples of what we all aim to be when we run these very difficult space and air missions. So the best we can do in software is to put machine learning capabilities into our spacecraft, our space missions, and then understand when and how to use them. We still don't really trust, and for good reason, generalized machine learning to just learn without bounds. Because we have many examples on Earth of where it's been pretty scary to just let machine learning run amok and not really have bounds on it. So the last thing we want to do is to have spacecraft crash or decide not to deliver data to us because we have machine learning that's not behaving well. Now, let me be careful when I say that. I don't mean that we're going to have an evil AI that's going to destroy <laughs> things, right? That is not what I mean. What I mean is just that you are not mathematically estimating a useful function, right? So that's that. Let me be clear. So now what is really being talked about a lot that people are excited about is the use of using modules of machine learning for things like perception, taking video, LIDAR, radar, whatever data it is that you have, and very efficiently processing it to find or classify objects, to try to predict their motion, and then to use that output to make decisions. Now, we rarely get up to 100% with those types of algorithms, but they do have the ability to take in new data sequences and learn over time. So we have more resilience to unexpected events because we're able to find objects and try to better predict where they go based on our observations over time. Now to go along with that, there's the notion of diverse redundancy. So the diversity, when you look at software, means that you have different software modules that are providing information. For perception, you might have, for example, three different software functions that take in the same data and try to deliver perceptions. Where are objects? What type are they? What are the, what's the situation that they're in? Basically characterizing the environment. And then you'll compare and contrast them the next level forward. 
That way, if you have one machine learning algorithm that has not really converged to the correct solution, you have backup information that can be used to really give you confidence that the output from the machine learning is correct or give you pause and make you, being the software that's monitoring all of this, suspect that maybe the adaptation has not been successful. So this is a way that you get resilience is by having diversity, meaning different types of software, and then redundancy, meaning that you have more than one. So perhaps you have three sensors of the same type or even more. Maybe you have different sensors that can provide the same information and you have multiple copies of each of those different types of sensors. If you put it all together, you get the best resilience. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So, so let's say that you have, you know, this nice suite of, of good sensors. How do you decide if, you know, if multiple sensors start giving you data that raises an alarm, how do you decide which to believe? Right. So if you have only three and you get three different answers, then obviously you would need something else. Normally you'd have the ability to approximate models based not only on real-time incoming sensor data, but also on expectations from maps and models that predated your mission even. So you can compare what you're seeing in real time with what you expected to see. As an example, if you look at, uh, I don't know, let's look at aircraft. Maybe the angle of attack sensor is reading something very high. And I'll let you draw your own conclusions as to why I might be saying that. <laughs> if it's without doubt something that is unreasonable for that aircraft, then you don't need to have another sensor to tell you that it's wrong. There can be logic based on bounds that you expect from those numbers to also inform the system that that sensor is misbehaving. So that's one of the ways that we're going in both air and space systems is to make sure that whatever perception module we have, we have, let's call it a watchdog, that is checking over what's coming out of that module to make sure that it's reasonable. If you put diverse redundancy together with these watchdogs, suddenly you begin to get a probability of success in at least identifying a problem that's quite high. Downstream, you still have to make decisions. It's possible that these watchdogs will say, you know, we really don't know what that sensor value is. In which case the decision modules, the way they get resilience is by being able to still make a reasonable decision based on the understanding that they do not know that particular data value. But that's something that people do. It's something that software can do. We can estimate the future based on our models and our expectations of how the state of the system and its environment will change. And then often we'll have some backup estimates of our information that won't be as high quality as if we had good data to start with, but that will give us a reasonable ability, especially to remain safe. I think a, an important thing to talk about here is when we say unexpected, um, we're not talking about aliens coming in and, and zapping your space probe. Probably not. No. I certainly hope not. <laughs> I do not have the expectation that our spacecraft are going to encounter obelisks, <laughs> little green men, or the Martian from Bugs Bunny. So how do you define this, this envelope that we're going to work in and say, here's what is possible but unexpected, and here's what's unexpected and impossible? So there's so much that depends on the mission context. Would you prefer I talk mm. about a spacecraft in orbit, something wandering about on Mars or the moon? What, what context would you like? Uh, I mean, whatever works best. Well, I think you get a slightly different answer depending on where you are. <laughs> okay. uh, if you are a spacecraft orbiting the Earth, 
there are certain things that you expect. You expect the laws of physics to apply, right? There are perturbations that we know about. We have very good gravity models. We have good drag models. We have good solar wind models. So if we apply those to our spacecraft, we can predict well into the future how it's going to orbit and what kind of changes in that perfect two-body orbit will happen over time. We have the need for resilience to a variety of events, such as unexpected solar activity, which could cause things like single event upsets in the computer, but we know about them. So we have to make sure that our software is prepared to handle that. And we can do that with a redundancy. It doesn't even have to be diverse. You do three calculations exactly the same way and you get a single event upset, then two of them are gonna be right. That's an example. Uh, we can expect to have blackout periods. We can ex expect to have times when there's a lot of data that needs to be communicated through the limited resources that we have. And so we might have to wait. We can expect to get slightly different energy harvesting from solar panels than what we expected. Maybe our batteries degrade a little faster than we expected. Single faults like sensors or wires that might fail, uh, valves, those sorts of things. We definitely in the engineering phase have to understand and prepare for. Things that are the unexpected, unexpected. Uh, well, being hit by some object. It's usually very bad news if uh, space junk hits another spacecraft. If you've heard the phrase, if your number is up and then some dots occur after that, <laughs> a simple orbiting peaceful spacecraft just trying to do its mission, if there is another piece of debris that crosses its orbit, there's not really a lot it can do. But there it didn't matter if it was autonomous or human observed. If that was not expected, then uh, that's just the end. Um, that's kind of the worst case scenario that that means you lose your spacecraft. It could be something small that would cause damage, like a micrometeorite impact of the space station, for example, in which case there would be a repair planned, but that would take longer than a few seconds. Let's see, go from that worst case where I'm already feeling fear just thinking about it because that's, that's so terrible. I mean, if you look at relative motion, here on Earth, we think of cars having terrible accidents because they have head-on collisions. Those are slow compared to spacecraft crossing orbits mm. because spacecraft move really fast relative to each other if they're in different orbits. Uh, let's see, we have, I guess, a future where I like to think most of the science and human exploration is going to be collaborative and peaceful worldwide, but there are an awful lot of military uses of space and I hope for the best, but there could be some unexpected things there. One of the things that's kind of hard to reconcile is uh, use of the limited communication spectrum that we have. There could be unexpected jamming of signals, not necessarily for hostile purposes, but just because a lot of different spacecraft are sending signals at the same time, along with the solar activity and other Earth-based activities that might have a pretty high electromagnetic signature. So having challenges with data sharing is something that one would have to deal with. And then that's only for the unmanned. You put people in space and you get a whole host of other things because people can't live in the natural environment of space. So there's a whole lot of life support systems that are necessary at all times that one has to really analyze carefully and make sure that uh, unexpected things can be managed 
such that the people survive. So I'm curious, this machine learning, has this been used on any spacecraft so far? Well, so let me tell a story of spirit and opportunity that you've probably already heard. They're wonderful. They outlived their design life by such a long time. If you go back, rewind to when they were within their primary mission phase, exploring Mars, they didn't really use machine learning because we wanted to get past that period where they collected the data that they were expected to collect. So then additional time passed, and what happened then was the mission operators and the clever engineers and scientists, mostly at JPL, said, hey, can we get some new software tested with these rovers that have now, we have bonus time. They're just continuing to go. Maybe we can do some extra things. So they did use some, I think I'll call it machine learning on those rovers to help them identify interesting data like the dust devils that they were able to capture and prioritize that data over less interesting data, which is, for example, an hour's video of the same rock that doesn't move or do anything. Mm. And they were able to bring back to Earth interesting data as opposed to just trying to pipeline everything brute force. So I think that really started the notion of scientists beginning to work with and trust the use of data processing, including some machine learning, to bring back to Earth the best quality science data possible and even direct the activities of data collection. So for example, with Earth observing spacecraft, where do you point the camera to take the next data? That can be guided by events of interest that have been observed on board the spacecraft without human oversight. Yeah, that's uh, kind of related to a question that I had, which was, um, I recognize that this uh, was in increasing autonomy is the idea. Uh, yeah, we, 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 we use the acronym IA, increasingly autonomous. Increasingly autonomous, right. So I recognize that this is going to be, you know, always improving and always getting better and changing. Is there a, a particular uh, space mission or satellite or rocket or something that's like, you know, flown already or is in the docket that really jumps out as like being right at the cutting edge of what we can do in terms of increasingly autonomous AI, I guess? I don't know if I should use that word. <laughs> well, uh, AI has so much pol political and psychological baggage behind it that I'm not sure we should use that <laughs> right, word. Right. Let's call it machine learning, which for me could include a giant function approximator that just tries to tell you what color a particular object is, mm -hmm. right? I, you know, there, there's so many different, different things, right? Or it could tell you whether it's a car or a person on the road, which is one of the things that's very popular in self-driving cars. So today it is still the case that space is really expensive to access. So there's a lot of conservatism in building a mission that is expected to succeed. That causes us to in inherently have some reservation about sending up the coolest, most technologically advanced widget that we could possibly imagine, mm. because it would be so costly to just lose it because that advanced technology had not yet been proven. So I think we're going to see trials that happen within the context of larger missions. So for example, I think we are going to increasingly see CubeSats, which are going along for the ride with some larger payload in most cases, do some of what you're talking about. Because they have very little to lose. They're not expensive, but they're also limited in what they can do. So they're not going to be headlining a major news agency because it's usually students or a small company or some group somewhere 
that has thrown together a cool new experiment, but it has limited societal impact. I think we're going to continue to see those that are kind of newcomers to the launch world doing cool things like uh, doing more autonomous docking, doing more uh, um, precision landing without splashing down or otherwise losing components. Mm -hmm. We are going to see more spacecraft with high efficiency or high specific impulse ion propulsion systems. We can't pour enough mass per unit set time out the back of a launch vehicle to use ion propulsion to get us off Earth into orbit, mm. but we certainly can do transfers between orbits using high efficiency ion propulsion, which really allows us to carry less fuel weight into space. That comes along with an increased complexity mathematically in calculating what direction the particles will be spit out and at what rate. So that's pretty exciting that we now can carry the computers as well as the thruster technology to more efficiently allow us to control a continuous burn trajectory to allow us to do precision orbit transfers, entry, descent, and landing, landing on asteroids. Pick something that's exciting to you and go there. <laughs> So I think once we, you, you take the devices in space, there's quite a lot that we're beginning to be able to do that I think 20, 30 years ago would have been pretty hard to imagine. Yeah, that's really cool. I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye out now <laughs> a little bit more than I had previously. So what's the one way that you think this machine learning can most benefit the area of aerospace? Yeah, where it's already benefiting things like self-driving cars is in taking high bandwidth sensors like video cameras and very quickly processing the data with limited resources so that we can find objects and track their motion. So that is going to help us with any sort of exploration on any planetary surface in the same way that it's helping self-driving cars. So if you look at the, the buggy that astronauts rode around on the moon 50 years ago, and you compare that with us effectively putting a self-driving buggy inspired by the best of technology that thousands of engineers are putting together with deep networks, which are machine learning systems, for self-driving on our Earth-based highways and streets. We're going to get some pretty big advances, not because we've poured a lot of extra money into using that machine learning for space, but because we have leveraged everything we've created for Earth in the best way possible for space. So basically, and I think that we had talked about this before with uh, another guest, uh, but it's really the largest benefit is that you can have the spacecraft or rover or whatever kind of narrow down what is of most interest. And so that way you can save on bandwidth and all of that because you don't have to, you know, pick these things yourself. You can just have it find the most likely target. Yeah, there's two, there's two things, right? So if you focus on science data return, then what you said is exactly right. You can pick regions of interest, data sets of interest, and return them to Earth first and then only return other information if you have time uh, and bandwidth. You also can navigate autonomously, right? So there are two separate problems. One is the science problem. That's the one I was just discussing and you were referring to. The second one is the engineering problem of, is it safe to drive straight forward or is it hazardous? Where should I turn? How should I navigate? What kind of speed can I go? What are my energy stores and do I need to stop and recharge? All of the things that we use for decisions, most of them can be done with just sequences of rules, but they're still for the perceptual piece 
that is is required to make wise decisions about navigating through an uncertain environment. And certainly uh, it's the case that we know the roadmaps and what's on them on Earth way better than we know where the rocks and holes and other hazards are on Mars. So we have to be able to do that a little better if we want more efficiency in the future. We also, as we begin to do things like build habitats, uh, let me talk about drones briefly, but this could be uh, if we're not flying because uh, it's harder to fly on the moon with no atmosphere. <laughs> uh, we could use uh, robot arms or uh, you know, free-flying little spacecraft that are just kind of bouncing around, whatever it is. There, there are all kinds of robotic devices one could imagine. Just putting a camera around a structure that is being constructed is providing a, a lot of useful information. Has there been any sort of compromise to the structure, like a crack in a bridge or a dam, right? We're already seeing civil engineering applications of data processing, even with hyperspectral imagery, which is really a lot of data per second, um, to find problems with structures. And so we can do a lot more of that in space applications, whether it's through a habitat that's orbiting um, somewhere like Mars or whether it's a habitat that exists on Mars or Moon. We'll need to do all of these inspections more often, especially if there are humans on them. And we're gonna have a lot of data that can be processed most effectively by systems that use machine learning. Yeah, that's actually a pretty interesting use that I hadn't considered. And it is inspired by something that's already being matured on Earth, right? Drones are beginning to inspect all kinds of different things on Earth. And we can directly translate that technology to space exploration. And we also have missions where we envision robots preparing habitats before the humans get there. So that means they would have to take their own data to make sure the construction went well. How far out do you think that that is? Because that seems like the holy grail to me. Like if you can have robots pretty much make your home before you get there, that makes everything so much easier and less, so much less risky. But it seems that that's a huge challenge because you're having to build a structure of some sort and you're doing it in space or on some other planet. I mean, I don't know. That just seems a little bit more science fiction than science to me at this point. Yeah. So let's go back a little bit. Uh, there was a big controversy within NASA. Do you remember when Hubble Space Telescope needed repairs? Yeah. NASA funded two different efforts and then eventually decided on one of them to make those repairs, and it was successful, so that was great. They had astronauts training to do a special mission to fix Hubble, and that's eventually what happened. They also funded quite a lot of robotics research with the thought that maybe they could launch a robotic system to repair Hubble. At the time, one of the reasons that they were really a little worried about the astronaut crew going up and repairing Hubble was not just because EVA extravehicular activity is pretty high risk for people, but also because the telescope was in an orbit that was difficult to imagine a safe rescue if something happened to the shuttle. Mm -hmm. And this was around the time when something had recently happened to the shuttle, so there was a lot of talk about that. Now, eventually everything was fine. The shuttle was fine. They got it repaired. They came back. It was great. But a lot of the reason of why they didn't do more with the robotic solution was because of this trade-off between trust and risk, which they perceived to have lower trust and higher risk in succeeding in fixing Hubble with the robot than if they used the people. Now, this was 20 plus years ago. No, maybe about 20. I don't remember the exact year. But uh, the point is, that was long enough ago 
that if they were that close, and I was tangentially involved with the robotic work there, and they were not that far from it, if they were that close 20 years ago, given all of our improvements in technology, I guess to me it doesn't seem all that ridiculous to think that we could have robots building habitats. They don't have to be efficient. They can try more than once. They can take their 3D printers with them. So it's not something where it's the holy grail unless we make it that way. Because any habitat that was envisioned to be constructed by robots would be specifically designed for those robots to have the easiest possible experience in constructing them. Mm -hmm. But even then, it seems like a just a huge challenge. Oh, it is a huge challenge. And I'm not talking about an ISS level of complexity, right? I'm talking about a tent that is bigger and has some structure to it and some equipment that's been put in it, right? So, so I guess there's all kinds of things that you can build and they go all the way from the tent up to the ISS type thing. So I know that you work, uh, boy, I'm going to use a phrase here. I know that you have done work on human-cyborg relations. Um, <laughs> oh, I like yeah. that term. I don't usually use that term. We call it human-machine collaboration. <laughs> well, that, that phrase was not in Star Wars, so um, I'm okay, going to go with human-cyborg yeah. relations. Um, <laughs> and, so uh, I would love to hear what we can expect in the near future, but what I really want to know is we have a robot on ISS, what's it called? I think it's called Robonaut. And it, it was always supposed to be this, uh, this robot that could do tasks that we didn't want to take up human time doing. I think it's actually successfully done airflow testing in front of the air return vents where, you know, normally a human has to hold like a hot wire sensor at, you know, in different quadrants. And they said, okay, let's set up the robot and let it do it. But this is such an eminently practical field of research and advancement. Why don't we have really good robots already working on the ISS? Is it just that difficult? Well, we have two different, we have three different types of robots that have been successful on ISS. One of them is Robonaut. You just talked about that one. One of them is a robot system called Spheres. So they're tiny little soccer ball-like robots. They don't physically interact with the environment, but they do things like uh, sample the air and uh, take video. Those have been successful at providing an over-the-shoulder view anytime a person might benefit from that, whether they're on the station or remote. Uh, we also have had success with the large manipulator, also uh, related to the one that was on the shuttle built by MD Robotics in Canada. Um, and so that one hasn't gotten a lot of press because it's just a workhorse robot arm that does things that it needs to do, yet it's still a robot. Uh, the large robot arm has typically been teleoperated because of the risk-averse nature of uh, NASA. They feel like they want to have the best chance of success, and they think that will happen if they have someone supervising the motion of this large robot arm that could potentially harm the station. Uh, that doesn't mean that it couldn't have been automated, because we know robot kinematics and dynamics really well. So it could have been increasingly autonomous, they just chose not to make it that way. So I think that uh, the cool, shiny robot tends to get the most press. Robonaut has been in that situation for a while. And let's face it, one of the reasons that Robonaut is so popular in the press is that it looks kind of human, so we mm -hmm. imagine all kinds of cool things about it. 
It didn't have to look human to have the functionality that it has, but that sure was nice when they took videos of it. So I think there are a lot of systems, you know, some of the little robot systems that might do things like uh, automatically water the plants that are growing, right? We don't really talk about those as robots because they're not moving around in the way that we think a robot should. But we can put new software, uh, say, to determine what uh, level of moisture is in the soil. And that's getting us toward increasingly autonomous operation of the station. It's just not something that's going to show up on any news agency. So you specifically worked on humans and robots working together. Now, is that mostly on the same tasks or just in the same environment? Yeah, so there are many different ways to look at how to solve the problem of human-robot collaboration. Uh, I had a PhD student that graduated uh, not too long ago who was studying a little different twist. A human and a robot with a manipulator were working in the same constrained environment like you would find in space, but they were doing different things. So the robot was reaching through a shared physical workspace to move objects around in the simplest case. The human was both looking at a screen, which could potentially be blocked by the robot arm as it moved around, and also the human was manipulating objects. Uh, to be truthful, in many of the tests, the human was asked to drink water and eat chips. But those were tasks nonetheless, right? And everyone was well-fed and well-hydrated when they finished the experiments. Um, but what we were looking at there is the notion of operation in a shared workspace with different goals. So we were trying to write some autonomy software so that the robot didn't have to communicate with the human to predict their intent. So what that allowed was for the robot to be minimally invasive, so the human could do what they were doing with minimal disruption. The human was also doing a couple of useful engineering-type tasks, not just eating chips and drinking water or so. Uh, but anyway, those types of experiments really kind of gave us some insight in how easy is it to predict human intent if we don't force them to be distracted from what they're doing and either command the robot in a sequence mm -hmm. of activities or spend a lot of effort communicating with the robot saying, I am now going to pick up my cup and drink some water, right? And, and one of the reasons we had that as an activity is that there's a whole sequence of motions that happen to actually move your arm to pick up the water, drink the water, put the water back, and then move your hand to wherever it needs to go next, which are a little more complicated than assuming a human is sitting in a control station with their hands on a keyboard and a mouse the whole time. So uh, those types of physical interaction uh, are still pretty interesting to predict. We're doing that a little bit with self-driving cars as well, but we tr treat people in other cars and so forth as, I guess I would say, rigid bodies, because we mm. don't really care where the arms and legs of the human are going. We just care that there's a human and we don't want to hit them. So that's one way is to ask the question, if they're doing different tasks, how do we minimize interference, potential for collision, potential for distraction? Uh, the other is if they're really collaborating on completing the same task, then we try to understand the most natural manner of interacting because ultimately there they do have to interact, the human and robot do. So for that, we tend to have experiments ranging from physically manipulating the same object, like picking up a beam and carrying it, whether it's multiple robots or maybe a human and a robot working together, or whether it's handing off between one and the other. So maybe the robot brings the surgeon the scalpel and then the human surgeon actually uses it. 
So there's all kinds of twists to that. It's 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 a very open problem, and uh, there's many different perspectives in terms of understanding what knowledge has to be shared, and what real-time intent has to be shared versus inferred. That is wild. That is not something I would have, you know, I always think of robots and the autonomy question, and it's just about, like, what are they capable of doing on their own, but not necessarily how are they capable of just interacting with people in something as, you know, that seems as simple as just sharing the same space and not getting in each other's way. You know what I mean? Yeah, but if we have human missions, that's we're going to see a lot of yeah, that. It's... So I think there's, that's, there's a lot of questions there. Well, and also, back to spacesuits, if you treat the spacesuit as a robot, mm -hmm. um, then start maybe with the exoskeleton on Earth or prosthetics that are becoming increasingly autonomous themselves mm -hmm. in assisting a human. And then uh, let your imagination run a little farther to what if that was kind of uh, integrated with these future spacesuits that I'd really like to see people work on a little more. Uh, then you might come up with something really cool and really capable. I mean, like, I, I'm thinking, like, su you know, super crazy wild end of the spectrum, like, third arm. Okay. <laughs> I was thinking uh, more like power well, armor. Yeah, so... <laughs> Doc Octopus. Yeah, so I want to... I wanna... Yeah, I want to reel you back from the dock yeah. off type of thing because that also scares us because there was some kind of chip that had to be embedded in his, you know, the back of his spine and that ended up controlling his brain and all of that. And we definitely don't want to go there. Right. Right. I, I was just, you know, there there are, there actually is some research right now by a, a professor that I know in, instead of using the natural human fingers to manipulate objects in a dexterous environment in space to use a robot hand and have the human hand basically behind the robot hand moving a little bit to give mm. haptic uh, commands. Mm. And the reason to do that is that we over the years have had a terrible trouble with spacesuit gloves mm -hmm. allowing de dexterous nat natural motion. We lose most of our strength if we have a pressurized glove. So uh, this would actually help us uh, be more effective. Mitts for your hands that your fingers can move inside of and then uh, a robotic manipulator that, that echoes your fingers' movements. Yeah, but it could be on the same spacesuit, right? So you could be sure. actually moving the robot hand and the ideal solution would make it really natural for your brain to send the commands to your mitt yeah that we're making the robot hand do exactly what you wanted. So would that be like a robot hand in front of your hand or actually like a glove that is the hand? You know what I mean? Like, I'm not sure I'm picturing it exactly. Yeah, so there could be either design, right? And I have seen uh, both. The, if your hand is inside the robot hand, then you're gonna be wearing a glove and there would be kind of an exoskeleton robot that was taking your finger motions as inputs and translating them, basically amplifying them so that you got the whole larger glove system to do what you were commanding. And the other one is, is, is the second option that you said, which is that you have your hand in a separate glove behind the fully robotic hand, and then that robotic hand can be small and agile, whereas the other one will be larger. So, but anyway, that's, that's really the spectrum of human-robot collaboration is so vast that we can think anything from uh, augmentation of physical skills all the way to somebody on Earth giving light commands that uh, are translated correctly, whether uh, the robot is nearby or several planets away. I think because I talked about it at the top of the interview, we need to circle around to, uh, to aerospace and flying in the atmosphere. Um, one of the papers that you worked on that absolutely fascinated me was the ability to land an airplane that's 
that doesn't have an engine, so a, a gliding airplane, um, not only land it at an airstrip, but to be able to select which is the best airstrip to land at. Yes, that's been one of my most obsessive and favorite research problems over the years, motivated by getting my private pilot's license and being really yeah. bad at the skill of choosing a <laughs> ditch site by just looking out the window. Um, yeah, so uh, I think the if you look at commercial aviation, multi-engine jet airplanes, it's very rare that they lose thrust. But when they do, it's really a pretty important thing to get it right. So the highest... Profile case of that was the Sully incident of the U.S. Airways flight that landed in the Hudson River. So that happens once in many years, you know, maybe once a year if you look worldwide, but it doesn't happen very often. On the other hand, if you look at general aviation, loss of thrust, which means either you've run out of fuel or your engine has failed for some other reason, happens in single-engine general aviation aircraft actually pretty often. Uh, so that there is a substantial reason to study this problem. So what kind of questions did you have? Basically what my first paper in that from 2002, I guess it was, introduced is the notion that if you want to do an emergency landing and have software help you, there's a two-step process. The first is to select the landing site and then the second is to plan the trajectory or, or flight plan uh, down to that site based on your reduced performance, which means that you have to have a steeper flight path angle than glide. Uh, and ideally, you'd have something that was around halfway between your maximum or steepest uh, dive and best glide, because that gives you the best margin if you have mm -hmm. unexpected winds or some kind of change in performance in the rest of your aircraft. So if you take that, give yourself the biggest margin by going steeper than best glide, and you look at all of the local runways, then you can use a pretty simple cost function that includes things like runway length and width, wind direction, presence of emergency services, and then you can choose the best one and plan a path down to that, and that can all happen automatically. The reality is what the U.S. Airways case really amplified is the need for two automation aids that will make our system increasingly autonomous that we don't yet have. One is data link to share emergency situations. If you listen to the voice uh, recording transcript that had both the air traffic control and Sully's uh, radio transmissions during the incident. What you find is that Sully right away was very clear in expressing to the New York air traffic controller that he had lost both engines, that there was a bird strike. And uh, the controller, it was so incredible that that would have happened that it took some time for that to sink mm -hmm. in, right? Enough time that Sully couldn't turn back to LaGuardia, right? So that is reason one that he had to land in the Hudson River right, which is that all of that other departure traffic needed to immediately get out of the way. A data link would make that happen. Voice-based air traffic control will not. So that's a technological advance that needs to happen ASAP. The second is that Soli, and he said this in his uh, testimony, he did not have the math tool, the little widget of software, that would have planned a flight back to LaGuardia accurately assuming no thrust. He just didn't have it. Technologically, it's completely possible. It's a math problem, and we know how to solve it. We solve it every day when we plan a flight for an aircraft to fly from one airport to another using a flight management system. 
but it's not set up to deal with failures yet. So if he had had that piece of software, which would have been deterministic, certifiable, insert all of those words, especially for something like loss of thrust, where we understand the performance of the aircraft, he could have had the confidence to turn back because he would have known there was margin. But as it was, it doesn't, it's not the case that a human can make those calculations as fast. It's the same challenge that Sully faced that an astronaut would have faced on Apollo without a flight computer. So he had to do the best he could, which is to do the mental math to say, do I have confidence I can get back? And the mental math told him, well, I better land in the Hudson. So he did all the right things, and it was great that everybody survived. But what that example really shows is that if you have the calculator pre-set up to just look at the runways nearby and do the calculation of what flight plan you can follow with no thrust, never again will an off-field landing that is really high risk, like landing in the Hudson River, be necessary because that increasingly autonomous system is in place. And then the question becomes, does the system just do it, even if there's a pilot staring at it? Or do they interact with the pilot? And the answer there is clearly, if you have such little margin to be safe that you can't really spend the multiple seconds that would be required to communicate that plan to the pilot, have them comprehend it and say yes or no, then there really is a strong argument for just doing it. As we transition to unmanned aircraft systems, UAS, and urban air mobility platforms, and we expect them to be operating in urban canyon-style environments, dense traffic, lots of aircraft with a lot of complexity in their operations because there's so many of them and the terrain and buildings are pretty complex all by themselves. We're gonna need these automation aids because we don't want to have to carry drone umbrellas as we walk down the street <laughs> yeah. in Manhattan because something with a parachute which was deemed to be not able to kill you but still would be real annoying if it hit you in the head is going to have some high likelihood of falling. Okay, so we have two final questions. The first one is going to be where would you like to be found on the internet? Let me uh, advertise the Robotics Institute at Michigan. So that would be uh, robotics.umich.edu. There's uh, a lot of news and special events that uh, happen there. I'm actually, I'm going to keep my aerospace engineering appointment, but I'm moving into the robotics building, which is going to be new oh, and shiny cool. and opening next February. We have a netted cool. facility called M-Air, that also is highlighted on the robotics website. Uh, so that gives us the ability to go out and fly whatever we think is cool without regard for whether it's safe yet, as long as it doesn't <laughs> escape from the net. Uh, and our people stay outside, of course, so they don't hurt themselves. We have uh, occasional videos that show up from time to time, but uh, I don't think I'm gonna point you to any of those right now. Let me, as a last thing, point you to the AIAA, that's the Aerospace Organization, uh, Journal of Aerospace Information Systems that I'm the editor for. Um, so far, it's had just regular journal papers, but we're hoping to grow it to have more uh, multimedia and cutting edge, increasingly autonomous uh, research uh, areas in air and space systems. And IEEE will probably get mad at me for that last one, but they know I'm the editor. So, they <laughs> so Professor Atkins, if you could bring one object with you into space, what would it be? <laughs> uh, should it be an object that exists today or something that I would hope to dream of getting? Ooh, let's go with dream, please. Number five from Short Circuit. <laughs> wow, really? <laughs> <laughs> 
That's such an interesting answer. Okay, so why? I have awesome. to know why. Well, so I would imagine that number five would have upgraded computer systems from when that movie was originally made. So I don't want 1980s computers. I want 21st century whenever I get launched computers and networking capability, et cetera. So number five would have a little edge computing center inside the body. But I think uh, for me, it's a matter of having a combination of a really capable robot with personality. Mm -hmm. right. Number five he uses treads, and I guess in zero G you would need to, maybe, he would have to be modified. Oh, I've totally retrofitted, but okay. <laughs> as you, if you remember, uh, number five modified himself as needed. Yeah. He went hang gliding. So number five would totally be able to just go into a room of parts and make himself the best space robot ever. Moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. Just one, well, two, but one launch. Uh, yeah. So what's that launch? All right, so our one launch will be on August 16th at 12.57 UTC. It is Electron firing uh, or taking their payload. Look, ma, no hands. So it's uh, it's got a few things in there. Um, it's got the Unseen Labs Maritime Tracking Constellation. It has a Black Sky Global 4 Earth Observation Satellite, and it has two experimental sats for uh, U.S. Air Force uh, Space Command. And so, again, this is August 16th at 1257 UTC with a window from 1225 to 1515 UTC, uh, launching, of course, out of their uh, Launch Complex 1 in New Zealand. And this will be the one that has the Brutus flight recorder on it, so right. pretty cool. Then after that, we have an EVA coming up. So the EVA is actually after our next show, but um, they're doing the preview briefing on Friday the 16th. Um, these are so worth watching on YouTube after the fact if you can't uh, watch live. Like I say this every time, they're almost better than watching the EVA itself. Um, so it's, uh, like I said, the 16th. Uh, at 2 p.m. is the preview briefing, uh, which you can watch live on NASA TV, and then it'll show up on their YouTube page afterwards. Um, and then the actual EVA is Wednesday the 21st, and that starts pretty early in the morning. At coverage starts at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time, and then the spacewalk begins at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. And it's a six-and-a-half-hour EVA, but that's uh, that's just after our next show, so we'll we'll remind you again next week. Alrighty, well, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, and with that, time to deal over at the show. And so we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies you can talk about the show with other listeners on twitter and reddit we're orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com all right so that's it we will see you next week on orbit until then later bye everybody see you